Well, I get to say good morning again. And I, and I always say this, but it's so great from this view to see everybody out here and see everybody in the cars, seeing the kids heading off to meet their uh, teachers for the, the Nova Kids class. And those of you through the camera, I can't see right now, but welcome to the live stream as well and whoever's watching later. And this is a beautiful and just glorious spring day here in the South Bay and uh, beautiful sun, wonderful breeze. And we are in this awesome series, I'm calling it an awesome series, called Who Is This Man? Where we've been looking through scripture to answer that question about who Jesus is. But our series has been designed with a particular focus. I don't know if you've caught on to that, but hopefully you have. But looking more specifically, actually at what Jesus says about himself in answering that question, who is this man, as we go through scripture. And Jesus' answers, they're varied and they're deep and they're full of meaning. And, and we've learned from Jesus himself that he is the bread of life. And he is the light of the world. And he is the door. And he is the good shepherd. And I was thinking about that this week and I'm thinking, just wait, because there's more. <laughs> there's so much more going on and we're going to jump right in. And today's text will be from John chapter 11. If you want to turn there, uh, either in a Bible or in an electronic device. Uh, also, if you use the uh, app that we have or our website with the uh, weekly digital bulletin. Uh, the passage we're going to uh, look at today is directly in there as well. But in John chapter 11, we come to a very familiar event and story in the life of Jesus. Uh, it's the resurrection of Lazarus. And as John recounts this story, Jesus and his disciples, they're uh, traveling around and they're ministering. And, and more of the specifics are included in the text of John chapter 11. But it's a long chapter, and so we're not going to cover the entire thing today. Um, but we do learn that Lazarus is a, a, a close friend of Jesus and he's very sick and he's not getting better. And of course, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus really assumes a couple of particular details. One, that Lazarus dies and two, that he is brought back to life. And that part of the story is truly amazing in and of itself. But my attention as I looked into this was drawn actually to some other details surrounding Jesus' statement about himself in John chapter 11. And so let's turn to our text for today from John chapter 11. Again, not going to read the whole chapter because it's longer, but I'm going to read, and they should be there in your notes there, verses 1 through 3, verses 6 and 7, and then we're going to skip ahead to verses 17 through 25. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. In verse 6, So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. And moving ahead to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. An amazing statement from Jesus, from God's word for us even today. And I've titled today's message, The Giver of Life. Up to this point in John's gospel, in the narrative that he puts on paper that we get to read, Jesus has presented himself as the giver of life to various people and in a variety of ways. I I listed in my own notes here a number of them. To Nicodemus, he offered eternal life in chapter 3. To the Samaritan woman, the water of life in chapter 4. To the official son and the lame man, the restoring of life in both chapters 4 and 5. To the hungry multitude, the bread of life in chapter 6. To the believers in Jerusalem, the rivers of living water in chapter 7. To the blind man, the light of life, both in chapters 8 and chapter 9. To the sheep who followed him, the abundant life in chapter 10. And here in chapter 11, Jesus is life in its ultimate expression. He is the resurrection and the life using his own words. This is, this is true life itself, and Jesus is going to go on to show this and to prove it through the miracle of raising Lazarus from the grave later in the same chapter. But in the midst of this familiar and amazing story, we come across something interesting, I think, something unique about the character of Jesus' work. There's something different going on here in this concept of Jesus being the giver of life, and I think it's important for us to understand Now, within the narrative of this story, and and all the time, really, Jesus knew what he was doing. And I know we would nod our heads yes, and we know this, and we say it. But here in John chapter 11, this idea gets real. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He always does. You see, neither the urgency of the situation, Lazarus being sick, or the disciples' resistance, and that comes up, by the way, in the portion of the chapter that we didn't read. They were hesitant to go back to Judea. But neither of those two things influenced Jesus' decisions or actions. You see, in in the larger storyline, the raising of Lazarus from the grave is kind of at the beginning of the journey of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and the cross. And so Jesus waits for the time set by God. And he went with God's purposes just in clear view and in clear focus. And here his goal was for Mary and for others to believe that he is life. And no matter what circumstances we face, we can be certain that Jesus knows all about them. And he sees them, however, in the context of God's perfect plan, which is much bigger and much broader than my perfect, or my imperfect, excuse me, perspectives and plans. And when we're in the middle of some awful situation, We can send urgent requests to Jesus, just like Mary and Martha did. And he will listen. But he wants us to look not just for some expected answers, things on our minds. And sometimes, I'll say, maybe even a lot of times, there's waiting involved. We're told in the text that Jesus loved this man. He knew the family. He knows about their pain. But it's interesting that he did not respond immediately. His response had a delay built right into it. And the text is clear that that delay was on purpose. 
God's timing, especially his delays. They might make us think that he's not answering. Have you ever noticed that often when we pray, our circumstances tend to get worse (laughs) before they get better? And we're tempted to doubt. And sometimes we're even driven towards despair, depending on what's going on. And we see here that Jesus delayed coming to his faithful, loving friends and followers. For two days, he went about his work far away from them where he was. And they probably went outside looking for him. Then they went back inside to Lazarus, back outside. And this probably went on over and over. That's just, that's just my guess there, but that's what I would have done. But with Jesus, timing is everything. But it's his timing, not ours. Sometimes we offer a passionate prayer of need and God answers quickly and we're thankful and we're excited and our faith is strengthened. Other times, it seems that God is never going to answer our prayers and we don't understand because we know we prayed for God's will, right? What should we do? We should wait in faith, knowing that God has our best interests in mind. We may never see our prayers answered in our lifetime. We may wait many years only to see God's answer in a completely different way altogether than we thought. We may find that God's final answer is no. Whatever the case, God's decision is best and his timing is what's right. Some verses came to mind here for this. Deuteronomy 31.6 tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us. Jeremiah 29.11 tells us that God knows the plans that he has for us. Plans to prosper us and to give us a future and a hope. In Matthew 28.20, Jesus himself tells his disciples that he will be with them always. I think this means that in Jesus, we find hope. But we know that in the middle of something tough, God's delays very rarely feel loving. And God doesn't always give us the reason for his delays, not in this life anyway. I learned something years ago about that verse from Jeremiah. And although it says that God knows the plans he has for me, nowhere does it say that God has to tell me the plans he has for me. It doesn't say that because God doesn't owe me anything, not even an explanation. He is God and I am not. But this is why we remember things like Nothing happens by chance, and nothing is is without purpose. And whether it's sorrow or sickness or death, nothing happens to you that God does not permit, at least for a reason. The entire book of Job in the Old Testament is evidence of that idea. There is no situation in life in which God cannot be glorified. It doesn't matter if it's an impossible boss, a loveless marriage, a crushing bill, a dysfunctional family. God can be glorified in each and every situation. Job, in the midst of his trials in a conversation with his wife, asked this question. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And we need to learn to ask no matter what's going on, how can I glorify God in the middle of this? Because our normal response is to ask, what's the fastest way out of this? (laughs) Right? That's where my mind goes. How do we get past this? How do we get through this? But part of becoming mature in Christ is learning to look at the situations we're in and, and know that whatever we face, we face it so that God can be glorified. 
And this passage here in John chapter 11, I think it shows that the glory of God and the love of God are not at odds with each other. God's glory and God's love are not enemies. And we need to reject the temptation to pit them against each other like they're two different things. Because I think the main way that God shows his glory is through his bottomless love for his people, even for us today. Now, as we read this story, we might have a question or think to ask something like, was it unloving for Jesus to wait two days to go to his friends? And if you were Mary or Martha, it probably felt like betrayal. (laughs) But I'm going to say something here today that you may not like. But please track with me. Don't tune out. Just for a moment, though, because I want to explain it also. What I'm going to say is this. Your feelings are fallible. Your feelings are flawed. They're fallible. Actually, I'll probably go so far as to say, I think our feelings sometimes are pathological liars because our feelings are going to tell us, Jesus doesn't love you. He's not doing anything. He's not coming to help you, right? That's what we get to with our feelings. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the feelings aren't valid whatsoever, but they can lie to us. And so what I mean by that is we need to learn to not trust only in our feelings. Don't trust the feelings only. We need to let the truth shape our emotions. Don't let our emotions shape the truth. Jesus' delays are actually delays of love. Because you know what? Something amazing is going to happen. We may not know when or how or with who, but something amazing is about to happen. But it's on His time, and it's for His glory. And when Jesus does arrive and He talks with Martha, they talk about Lazarus. We read that conversation And Martha says that she knows he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's where her mindset was. But Jesus had something so much more in mind. And he delivers one of his most amazing statements about himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Verse 25 of John chapter 11. Jesus is not only saying that he has power over death, even though that's true. He's saying that he is the resurrection and the life. To believe in Jesus is to live because Jesus is life. In Jesus, because of that, we also find a future. We have a hope and a future, a future that begins now and moves forward. And Jesus is telling us that the reality of the resurrection, it's not something that simply awaits us later in the end time when we get to heaven. But the resurrection describes an aspect of life that we can experience now, here. And this is amazing. And this is life-changing. Of course, instead of fearing death, we can live in confidence. But it's a confidence that finds its root in Jesus' promise and in Jesus' demonstration of power over death. That can bring an amazing confidence. I recently had the opportunity to do something I hadn't done in a long time. Last weekend, I wasn't here. I got to spend a couple nights and three days 
with some dear old friends. And as we were preparing for that, I'm going off notes here. This is un unusual for me. As we were preparing for that, uh, last year we were going to try to do something, myself and a number of old friends with our families, and then the pandemic hit, and that all got canceled. We were going to do like a camp out or something. And so we started talking about this again about two or three months ago maybe, and, and trying to figure out what to do. Still not sure where the pandemic is because there's about six of us that want to get together and lots of families and kids and so a couple of the guys just said why don't we make it a guys weekend for this first time and we'll do something with our families later and so weeks ago we were connecting and talking again and i remember asking my friend scott who's the host i said scott how old is your youngest kid and he said why i said because we're trying to figure out how long it's been since we've all been together and i remember last time my wife reminded me last time we were all together your wife was pregnant with your son and he said, well, Seth just turned seven. <laughs> so we connect all the time and talk. And, and here and there, pieces of the group have gotten together. But it's been at least seven years since all of us got together. And that was only four of us because a couple of the guys couldn't make it. And so we were really looking forward to this time together. And we had a, a blast. The last time probably all six of us guys got together may have been at one of our weddings, you know, and the last one of us to get married was maybe like 14, 15, 16 years ago. And so this was amazing. These were guys that, of course, I didn't meet until I moved to California right before I started high school. But these are guys I went to high school with and college with. Some of them went to middle school and elementary school together. Uh, the, these were some of the guys that I started ministry with when I started volunteering at our church way back when. Uh, guys that I've known for so long, two of them were the best men in my wedding because when we were planning our wedding and I was trying to decipher, man, I can't pick just one. My amazing wife said, why don't you pick both of them? <laughs> so I had two best men. That was this group of guys. And we reminisced and we barbecued and we didn't have a lot planned. We just hung out. And uh, during that time, I'll tell one quick story. Uh, Ryan was looking to post something on Facebook, I think, and he saw an old message and he's like, oh my gosh, I got a message from somebody and it was like over three years ago and I never replied and he felt so bad. And so this was the, uh, the wife of a couple that they were uh, volunteers in the youth ministry when we were students many, many years ago. And so on the spot, Ryan sent her a message and she replied back right away. And uh, Ryan asked, are they home? And they said, yes. And Ryan said, we're coming over. <laughs> And so we just piled in a car and drove over to their house and showed up and spent an hour with them. And we, we encouraged them. They encouraged us. This couple had been involved in the youth ministry as leaders when I was in high school and in college. They also at one point uh, in time gave us all jobs because they ran a live cut Christmas tree farm for about four decades or so. And just an amazing and awesome time. And I think many of you have probably had times like that over the years with friends. And I, I can't even tell you how life-giving that time felt and how it filled our hearts. And it filled us in ways that we didn't even know our hearts were somewhat empty. And I'll bet every single one of you has something in life like that, that you might describe that same way, right? You would say it just gives you life. It fills you up. Maybe you feel that way after a good workout. Maybe it's after... Uh, going and seeing your favorite group in concert or your favorite sports team play. Maybe it's uh, after you travel somewhere or after a great vacation. Maybe it's after a really amazing meal 
or just catching something breathtaking and stunning in creation and in nature. And you're pumped up and you're full of energy and life and you didn't even know that that was getting low in you until that happens. But you know what? I was thinking about that after I came back last week. Even though all of these things can be described as life-giving, they don't even compare to the life that Jesus gives and to the life that Jesus offers. Last week in our series, Pastor Dean's message was from John chapter 10. And part of that was a verse in which Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10 verse 10. And what my friends and I experienced last weekend, it does flow out of what we've been experiencing all these years that we've been living with Jesus and serving Jesus. And that is just, just a part, just a glimpse of the life to the full that Jesus offers us. Here in John 11, Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. And I am a huge believer in the fact that that life that Jesus offers, that starts here. That starts now. It is not just something that comes later or when we get to heaven. And that life is found in Jesus because in Jesus we find life. We find hope and we find a future and we find life. These work hand in hand with each other. And I'll tell you today that Jesus doesn't just give life. He is life. And more importantly than me telling you this today, this is what he says about himself. Because he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you want to have that kind of life? Get with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Follow Jesus. Love Jesus. Live for Jesus. Sound like a broken record, I know. So Pastor Adam, do you mean to, to tell me that the message of the gospel is really that simple? Yes, I do. Absolutely yes. I would say a thousand times yes. Because one of the things the devil wants to do is to make your faith complicated. But the message of Jesus is really pretty simple. Now, something you'll also hear me say is this. Simple does not mean easy. They're two different concepts. I know that this is not always easy. That's not what I'm saying. But the concept is simple. If you want the life Jesus gives, then you need to give your life to the giver of life. That's Jesus. He's the only one who can give life and give life to the full. No one else, nothing else is going to do that. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I can resurrect people and I have life. He says, I am resurrection. I am life. Because our hope is not in an event. It's not in a resurrection. But it's in a person. It's in Jesus. And nothing can hinder him from giving life because he doesn't have life. He is life. And life in this fullest sense and here in the Bible and here used in John, it doesn't just simply mean existence. It really has a, a deeper meaning that conveys a fullness of life to it. And that's the thing that he's talking about here. And, and that's what we were made for. And that's what we can experience in Jesus. And that life begins when you give your life to Jesus and you become a Christian. The power of God that will enable us to live forever with him in eternity, that's the same power that resides in us here and now, today. 
God doesn't change. His power doesn't change. It's the same. And also what's going on here is John is showing that Jesus' works, they are concrete. He is not just the light. He gives sight to blind people. Jesus is not just the resurrection and the life. He brings somebody out of the grave. The revelation of Jesus doesn't take place apart from concrete acts in history. And the truth about this story in John chapter 11, the truth isn't found just in the inspiration of the narrative, but it's found in the deed that it talks about and records. Remember earlier I mentioned that something amazing is going to happen? Something happened in Bethany that day that was unparalleled, hadn't happened. And Jesus Christ acted decisively as the giver of life. And that same life that begins here and now when you become a Christian and continues on for eternity with God, that same life is available to you and to me, but only through Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 I have come that they may have life and life to the full. John 10.10 I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. John 11.25 This is truly amazing in a statement from Jesus about himself. And as we wrap up and close our time together today, I hope you realize who this man is. Jesus is the one who brings with him good news. And the good news is there's more. (laughs) There's another chapter. There's chapters about hope and chapters about a future and chapters about life. And it's because of the resurrection. And Jesus is the resurrection. That's what he says here. And so that incredible thought that a person could shatter the bonds of death and burst into life again, it really boggles the mind sometimes. But that is Jesus. And God's word tells us that if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And as we wrap up today, you could almost paraphrase it this way. Jesus says, come here. He says, I've got a deal for you. Give me all the junk in your life, all your failures and your fleeting successes, all your lusts and sins, all your manipulative behavior, all your baloney, and let's trade. You give me all that stuff, and I'll give you my rightness, my power, my way of seeing things, my life. It's almost too much to believe, but it's true. Jesus really is the giver of life. Amen.